guys, we're in the middle of a pandemic and these are trying times. It's hard on our mental health, our mental state. And this is why I love our sponsor today, BetterHelp. They're the largest online counseling platform worldwide. They change the way people get help with facing life's challenges by providing convenient, discreet, affordable access to licensed therapists. BetterHelp makes professional counseling available anytime, anywhere, through a computer, tablet, or smartphone. It's brilliant. Sign up today. Go to betterhelp.com backslash solving healthcare and get 10% off sign up fees. COVID has affected us all, and with all the negativity surrounding it, it's often hard to find the positive. One of the blessings it has given us is the opportunity to build an avenue for creating change, starting right here in our community. Discussing topics that affect us most, such as racism in healthcare, maintaining a positive mindset, creating change, the importance of advocacy, and the many lessons we have all learned from COVID. If you or your organization are interested in speaking engagements, send a message to quadcast99 at gmail.com, reach out on Facebook at Quadcast, or online at drquadjo.ca. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quadjo Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Quadcast Nation, listen. You asked for this, and we are delivering again. We are bringing a live cast talking about how we get out of this pandemic, the path forward. And at the end of this, I think you're going to have that glimmer of hope. I think you're going to see the vision that this is feasible and this is possible. And by starting this dialogue now and the dialogue that people on this cast have been, been advocating for over the last few days, weeks, you know, there's a momentum there. And part of this is to carry that momentum. You know, what the status quo right now is not adequate, especially for us, for us in Ontario. We got to we got to shift the, the dialogue. We got to shift the narrative. So before starting, I just got to do a couple housekeeping keeping items. Uh, Julia, as usual, Hajar is helping out with the comments and the questions. So we're going to try and field about 10 minutes of questions at the end. She's amazing. She has an amazing website, a spoonful of science. That it throws down some nutrition advice. It's, it's incredible. So thank you once again, Julia. If you guys type in NL uh, in the in the text box, you, you'll get uh, our newsletter, which will give you direct access to the podcast and the video uh, of this uh, of this live cast. So NL, type that in, and you'll uh, get access email to you. Next, solving wellness. I got to tell you about this. This is our, our platform for dealing with clinician burnout. We have all, virtual workouts, yoga sessions, nutrition tips, cooking classes, mindful meditation, and we're a community of almost 300 banded together to try and combat burnout. If you, uh, I think Julia is going to put in uh, a link to it, and we're giving out some free memberships. I believe it'll be about 20 or so. So if you guys uh, use that login or that uh, link that Julia is about to post on uh, Facebook there and join the movement. 
All right, I'm going to just jump right into it. There's a, these guests need no introduction, okay? Straight up. We're going to start Monica, Dr. Monica Gandhi, infectious disease specialist. Zane Chagla, infectious disease specialist. Stefan Burrell. We're talking public health dynamo, all right? And we are here, as I mentioned, to address, to address Omicron, to address the path forward. And I'm going to start with, I'm going to start with Zane, actually. We're going to start with Zane. What is your, your general assessment of Omicron right now? What do, what do we know? What do we don't know? Yeah. So, you know, number one, this is affecting a lot of people. And, you know, the, the path of, you know, if we do X and Y, we'll prevent everyone and, you know, infections will disappear. I mean, there, there was no path for infections to disappear. There was never a COVID zero. But this, you know, was the nail in the coffin for any type of that discussion. What happened in Gauteng, what's happened around the world is exponential growth of this variant in the context of populations that have pre-existing immunity. But we are seeing study after study after study, South Africa, Denmark, Scotland, United Kingdom, even our data now in Ontario, uh, really suggesting there still is no the that hospitalizations are not the same as Delta. And, uh, and, you know, again, there may be some component of immunity that is, there probably is a huge component of immunity that is helping with that. Uh, and uh, likely, you know, again, there are some biologic studies suggesting even the virulence factors are not there. Invasion of lower lung tissue may not be there or, or, or be more impaired than other variants. But the numbers and sheer numbers of people getting infected, and, and in Ontario, I think we've lost count because our testing system has basically fallen apart. You know, we have to start making some serious decisions. And the way we managed this pandemic in March of 2020, when we had zero tools and we used case and contact management as our, you know, major uh, effort to keep disease under control, it worked well when cases were low. It worked well when we had zero solutions like immunity or, or therapeutics. It doesn't work well when 5 to 10% of your population, probably 5% now, has COVID-19. Uh, and the number of cases being generated and the number of contacts being generated and the consequences of isolation uh, are going to have significant effects on society when healthcare workers are put out, when fire departments are put out, and we're hearing that in Toronto already, um, when um, essential services shut down uh, and, and there's downstream effects of all of that. So, you know, I think, again, we, we the cat's out of the bag. Omicron is here. Uh, and, you know, uh, it, I know a lot of people are calling for lockdowns and restrictions to get rid of it. And, and the reality of the situation is the second you open up, a moment later, Omicron will be there. Uh, and so, you know, we have to live with this as the new COVID-19, an extremely infectious, but, you know, immunity... Uh, and our biologic principles are suggesting it is much less uh, hospitalizations. There's still concerns, obviously, in a, a strapped healthcare system for having a lot of hospitalizations at once. Um, but again, you know, the mentality has to be case and contact management and isolation is not optimal. There are going to be downstream effects from it. Uh, and, you know, very, very restrictive public health measures should only be reserved at the, you know, 
the the healthcare system is going to fall apart in that sense. And even then it should be falling apart from patient care, not falling apart from isolation of healthcare workers. Because again, that's something we created in, in the context of trying to control the disease. And again, you know, we have to have this mentality, like we're not going to lock down and have Omicron disappear from the face of this earth. It is here. It is everywhere. It is invaded through every ecosystem on this earth. Uh, and so, you know, we have to also consider what this means for our long-term future in dealing with this virus. Absolutely. And I just want to echo the, the, the whole isolation aspect of, you know, I, um, I sit on a lot of meetings on what we need to do when we uh, have high risk exposures and it, you can knock out a significant amount of staff in a, a, over like one or two exposures. And this is in, a, in, a, in an era where we've already lost significant amount of uh, healthcare uh, professionals due to burnout and, and, and so forth. So this is an important consideration. Steph, I want to bug your brain a bit about uh, one uh, speak a little bit about the shelter experience, but two, when would you feel comfortable in terms of the data that's being uh, released in terms of when we think or more, we have a more solid conclusion on Omicron being less virulent? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think, I think similar to others, the data right now point to, to this being, um, potentially less severe. I mean, I think that's uh, collectively, we, I think folks are feeling increasingly comfortable saying that it's one of these things that nobody wants to get caught out saying like, it looks much better. And then all of a sudden, you know, it changes dramatically. And, um, and, 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 you know, you get into one of these situations where if you've called 37 waves and that each one is deadlier than the last, like there's not a really a problem there, but if you say, well, you know what, this may be better than the last, all of a sudden, you find yourself in a, in a tough place. I think there's a few things that are really interesting, maybe to build on to uh, on what Zane just said. So one, the dynamics of testing have dramatically changed. So not only, and, and Monica, th this I think is it's a kind of an Ontario uh, and potentially even sort of GTA specific dynamic, which is that we've had a run on testing, but we've not had a run on testing because folks are really sick. We've had a run on testing because folks want to get together for the holidays. Like it, it's this dynamic where it's almost like a testing, like the purpose of the testing is really about like, social gatherings and, and not because folks are really that unwell. When you see the lineups, I see them outside of our centers. Like people are on their phones, they're talking, they're hanging out. These are not folks that are short of breath, that are deeply unwell, that need to sit down, that need anything that would be in our emergency rooms. These are folks that are generally what we, what we many, what we generally call the worried well. And I can understand it from a pure perspective of like, they don't want to infect, you know, grandma and grandpa that they're getting tested. But what it's doing is overwhelming our testing system. So the folks that are actually really sick, folks in lower income areas in our shelter systems, we're taking three or four days to get our results back. And so maybe just say a few things about the shelters. One, we have had our first kind of big shelter outbreak, but the folks uh, are not that unwell. I think that is what's dramatically different here. These are folks, it was, you know, over 30 infections, but very mild symptoms. Nobody's been hospitalized. And it's most of the folks there are vaccinated and other folks likely have a, have a history of exposure. And between the two of them, it's protected them. I will note, but by and large, in other shelter settings, we have wastewater surveillance that's led by the province in a number of facilities. We've not seen a lot of virus. In fact, we've seen very little virus um, in the wastewater, which is something that is very different than previous waves where you saw it immediately, even before folks were symptomatic. You saw a lot of virus in the wastewater and you were sort of getting like this heralding kind of feeling of impending doom that like, and, and sure enough, that's exactly what happened. Like it gave us a few days of heads of, of notice and then we moved on it. 
I think, and, and so like in seeing that it's really now in Toronto kind of stuck so far to the wealthier area, sort of what happened in January to March of 2020 before you had this epidemiologic transition. So those were folks coming back from Switzerland, you know, from skiing and then bringing COVID back into Canada. And, and, and it moved very rapidly into lower income areas. You know, we haven't seen that happen yet. It's always this word of like yet, you know, we in, in our other ways, Zane, you led this analysis. We saw this happen very quickly with Delta, very quickly, like within the period of a week or two, it moved from travel into low income areas. And it was, you know, there was almost no third wave in higher income areas. It was really among essential workers. And we've not, it's been a couple of weeks now, you know, in Hauteng, things are slowing in, in South Africa, things are slowing down. Many other places, things are slowing down. We've not seen that transition happen yet. And, and I think that also gives me a little bit more of hope that we're not going to see this transition. And part of that, again, is because folks who are on the margins are not going to wait four hours in lineup for a test. They just can't. I mean, folks can't. You know, I think folks are, who are shift workers are not going to take, are not going to skip a shift, right, in order to just stand in lineup for a shift, um, for tests, unless they're really unwell. And I think folks who are, who are more unwell, they're going to go to the hospital. Interesting dynamic where we may not see that transition, not only in terms of case rates, but also in terms of hospitalizations. Because even if folks don't get tested, if they're sick, they'll end up in hospital. And so we're not seeing that either. And so I think we really need to ask ourselves fundamentally, like, wh what is this testing for? Why are we testing? I, as, a, as, as you were saying, as a public health practitioner, we learned the Wilson and Junger criteria from like 1968 about why we test for things. And it's like, I can't understand any of it here. It definitely doesn't meet any of those criteria. I'll note those are WHO accepted criteria for screening. It doesn't meet any, like parties is not one of the criteria, you know? And so I, it's just to say that I think we need to ask ourselves that question. And the last thing I'll say just in the shelter system is that there's a lot of hybrid immunity. And, you know, as, as, as we'll hear uh, Dr. Gandhi to Monica speak to, like, you know, the vaccines are amazing. They're not sterilizing. That is abundantly clear to everybody. This is, people are still getting infected. That was always, you know, we saw that even in the trial design, it was about symptomatic infections. It was not about, you know, whether you could pick up virus in throat, right? I mean, AstraZeneca did that in there in the Oxford trial. But the other two trials, you know, for, for Moderna and Pfizer, really about symptomatic infections. And, and so that is really what this was about, preventing symptoms, preventing hospitalizations. And that's what the vaccines have done. You add that in with, you know, the, the immunity that you get from infection and which is, you know, there's been we've had tremendous outbreaks in the shelters. And I think if you put yourself in a combination with likely more sterilizing immunity, combined with this immunity that you get from the vaccines. And, and I think you find yourself that they may be more protected. Again, this could change in a week or two weeks. And if it changes, I will note all four of us here are frontline clinicians. We will all react to it if it does. But for now, it's not changed. So, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, this is once again, just in my mind, step, just more reassuring uh, information. I, I, you know, the, I just read about today about the wastewater data, about the fact that it, we're not getting that significant signal. Um, and that obviously is, uh, a novelty in this, uh, in this stage of the pandemic. Um, Monica, I just, I, I was pumping up your tires beforehand because I really think you've been representing hard lately. It just, being of such a voice of reason and, and, and I, the, the times article, the, the most recent one on like how we get out of this bad boy 
with the path forward, you know, what we should be focusing on in 2022. And if anyone sees that CBC, uh, what's it called? The uh, power politics, that six minute clip, you just freaking like cross kick that bad boy. It was amazing. <laughs> so like, let's, <laughs> let's uh, like, wh- what, what's your vision? What's your vision on, on how we walk our way out of this? Yes, I have a 10 point vision, but it's short. Um, and I will say, um, I mean, I'm not even going to say unequivocally that this is more mild. It is more mild. Um, it's it, I actually feel sort of offended in a way by South Africa again and again and again. Researchers and doctors who I've worked with as HIV as an HIV researcher, same with uh, staff uh, saying saying this is more mild and us not believing it until maybe the UK told us. So um, it is It is more mild, it is definitive, and why? Um, probably Omicron is more mild because yes, we have lots of immunity, cellular immunity. I wrote a Washington Post piece today that about cellular immunity. It's really important to not think it's just antibodies. I think that's been a profound miss by the media and, and some scientists. And then the second is, um, is that, yeah, I don't think it affects lung cells. I mean, Ravi Gupta's lab at University of College London, Zane, um, you pointed out that study in sort of the University of Hong Kong, it doesn't look like it infects lung cells. And that's, so I think it could be a combination of more immunity and inherently less virulent. That is what ended the 1919 uh, influenza pandemic, was a highly transmissible influenza that was either either less virulent or we had enough immunity. So I think we're getting near the end. So what are the 10 points that we have to change our strategies so that we stop harming the public, stop, stop harming children? Um, because there's not an element of this, of harm reduction, especially what's happening in Canada in your response. And uh, that is, to me, it's super simple. So, okay, <laughs> 10 points, but I'll be fast. One, um, spacing of doses, which Canada has already done, eight weeks. Uh, so smart, especially with um, men. And I wouldn't give boosters to people who have had prior infection or get an Omicron infection now, because that is hybrid immunity. As Stefan said, it's actually, there's a JAMA paper that it's even better to get you know, a mild breakthrough. And, and unfortunately, we can't prevent that. We really can't prevent it. Like Zane said, it's too transmissible, but it gives you that hybrid immunity. And then if you give a booster on top of it, that's not necessary. And there are side effects of um, of these Medicaid, of these uh, vaccines, uh, where clots and Johnson Johnson and or AstraZeneca, what you have, and um, rare myocarditis in young men. So I wouldn't, uh, so let's have some nuance and precision medicine in our booster recommendations. Second is masks. I think that they need to be done in terms of blanket mask mandates. This is highly transmissible cloth that will get through, surgical will get through, um, maybe N95s, KN95s, FFP2s, or K, uh, K94s. Um, uh, you could not get through, but that should be reserved for people who are at risk for a severe breakthrough. And so who would be at risk for a severe breakthrough? Well, we don't even have good data on that from the CDC. We want better data, but immunocompromised or older people. So my 87-year-old father happens to be immunocompromised newly and older, and I'm going to have him mask um, with, the, with this one of these strong masks indoors. But, uh, but um, masks for the general population, blanket masks does not make sense to me now. Third is test to stay in schools. So that was endorsed by the CDC. So if you have a quarantine, you if no quarantine anymore. If you're negative, then you then you get to go to work. 
Same with isolation, what we just talked about. It looks like it could be shortened to five days. The CDC did that today. I would even shorten it more because there was an Annals of Internal Medicine article that showed us that if you have an asymptomatic breakthrough with, with Delta and it gets to Stefan's point, why are we testing asymptomatic vaccinated people? But anyway, if you had an asymptomatic breakthrough, people are positive one day, 33 people in this Annals of Internal Medicine article, healthcare workers, and they were negative the next day. So kind of almost a test to stay for isolation too. Um, uh, and then um, no more masks in schools after we've had this kind of ability to give our children vaccines. Um, and that should still be a choice for parents, but I would just do eight weeks after the availability of the vaccine and then stop. And then oral antivirals, which are here, molnupiravir and, and Paxlovid, they actually uh, looked like the hospitalizations, uh, CDC released data today, you are... Um, 15 times more likely to be hospitalized if you're unvaccinated than vaccinated right now in this country. We um, need compassionate care for our unvaccinated and an oral pill is much easier than a monoclonal antibodies, which also some of them can be evaded, um, Omicron evades them. Then we had to recognize natural immunity. That's by six point, I'm almost there. <laughs> natural immunity um, and, and give one dose after that or just at least recognize it, especially with vaccine mandates. We know it's it's powerful. Um, the last is second, third to last is please give us more data on who's susceptible to severe breakthroughs so we know who to boost and we know who to mask. And then shorten isolation, which I talked about. And then the last one is um, no matter what, no more school closures. Um, I, uh, I should say the last two are actually no travel bans no, and global vaccine equity, but the final one is no more school closures. So no more, so no more at all and no more lockdowns. Why? Because we actually have all these tools. We have the vaccines and we know, and we've prevented severe disease. Cases are uh, cases and they could even be people who are asymptomatic, like everyone's uh, describing standing in line. Stefan said so many people are standing in line and they're absolutely fine and they're vaccinated and they're even boosted. Um, so no more asymptomatic testing um, so that we can um, uh, really focus on not on cases, but preventing hospitalization. So switching our metrics to a hospitalization based approach where we want to prevent hospitalizations. Don't tell the the, the public about cases anymore. Singapore. Track them in health departments, but not to the public. Were you, were you also busting out like Singapore's doing this right now? Yeah, so Singapore started that in September because the exact same thing happened that we're seeing right now with Omicron in highly vaccinated regions um, like Ontario and the U.S., multiple places in the U.S., which is that they had lots and lots of breakthrough infections with Delta, but they had 87% of their population vaccinated. So with the highly vaccinated population, which didn't reflect the U.S., um, they were just seeing mild infections. And so they stopped telling the public about cases. They just uh, tracked them in health departments. And then the public uh, and the New York Times website, it would just say hospitalizations. So you can see that there are multiple places doing really well. California is doing really well with Northeast Ontario. And then that way it's, it's going from a more influenza surveillance model where we're going from pandemic to endemic with COVID. And uh, the reason we track cases with influenza is to make sure we're not going from endemic to pandemic. So you're going to track cases, but the public only knows about hospitalizations. Listen, folks, this is why it's so beautiful. Like the, 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 the fact is we are putting faith in our vaccines. Yes. Okay? We're putting faith in our vaccines, which, as uh, we talked about earlier, the main juice, the main objective 
is that it prevents you from landing in a hospital. It prevents you from landing in an ICU and it prevents you from dying. This is the magic. So this is why we use this metric. And using this as our, our shield is our, and our main area of focus will allow us to stop this asymptomatic testing, allow us to uh, potentially focus our energy and protection. And Steph, we're going to get into this too in a bit about like where we could focus our resources um, to really, you know, sh- shelter those that are vulnerable of landing in hospital. But the foundation out of all of this is the vaccines that we have had an extremely effective campaign and we have ex- high vaccination rates. And we don't even in this country, we don't even try and figure out how many people have had uh, natural infection, which is another story we'll get into. But yes, like this is what I, I think, you know, I don't want to editorialize too much, but uh, and take away from our guests. But this is what I want our leaders to do, to have that vision and be less reactive and say to ourselves, when are we at this point? When are, do our experts, when do our, when is the data telling us that we're at that point where we're moving towards being endemic and we can focus on hospitalizations and away from cases? Zane, you wanted to make a couple of comments on therapeutics and then Steph, we're going to talk about what, how we could do some targeted action. Yeah, thanks. So, you know, first of all, I think there, there's been, you know, this antagonism towards therapeutics and, and you know, many have accused uh, physicians of, you know, upgrading vaccines and downgrading therapeutics. And, you know, there, there have been people that have ignored it. And, and so be it, you know, I, I think we've, at least our community or, or a few around us have, have really tried to bring therapeutics to the limelight. And, and again, you know, we saw there were options to just save healthcare capacity, which is all we were looking for at the beginning of this. Uh, and offered stuff. And, and this is why we started, to, you know, giving monoclonals. This is why we're so excited about drugs like Paxlovid uh, uh, and developing pathways so that people, you know, regardless of their vaccine status, don't land up in hospital. And again, it goes back to the initial point. We did case and contact management. We used restricted health measures. We added masking. We added a lot of different layers in the context of us having zero other options other than landing in hospital, needing oxygen, needing a bed, dying, uh, or large scale outbreaks. It's 2022, you know, we have vaccines that are incredibly effective at keeping people out of hospital. We have multiple therapeutic options prior that, that can be identified, you know, and given to patients to reduce their risk of ending up in hospital, even if they have, immunocompromising states, medical conditions, high-risk breakthrough cases, or, you know, decline to get a vaccine. You know, if we aren't exploiting all of these tools to save our healthcare system, if doses are sitting on shelves, if people are not getting access to these medications aggressively, and even easy stuff like inhaled budesonide and fluvoxamine, where, you know, you may reduce the risk of hospitalization in high-risk populations with generic and cheap drugs. If we're not using... side effect, too. Yeah, fluvoxamine has some side effects, but, you know... Like, but yeah, like a, a bedestinite. Yeah, inhaled bedestinite is easy. Um, but, you know, I, I think, you, you know, it's been... As someone who's been trying to roll out therapeutics, it's been so difficult because I felt these barriers along the way. And, and you know, people were more invested in vaccines. Great. They were invested in vaccines. They're a long-term solution, but we still had to have these plans. You know, we don't do HIV care and say, we're going to, you know, 
invest everything in prep and then if people get hiv we're going to give up at that point right no you treat the hiv because in our country i just have to interrupt that's because in our country therapeutics is republican and prevention is democrat <laughs> and t-cells are republican and no t-cells oh. yeah t-cells all voted for trump that's what west oh. t-cells voted for trump t-cells <laughs> voted for trump <laughs> okay sorry it was a slow rollout for therapeutics right like i literally there was no large-scale monoclonal clinic in Canada, we had to start our own from scratch and show the, you know, our province that this worked. Uh, and, and finally now they're being scaled up across the country and in the province. And so, you know, I think one of the ways forward and embracing it, you know, our, our testing is a mess right now. And, and the sad part is, is again, as Monica had identified the people at risk, the people that need to get a test in a rapid manner so they can, you know, access packs a little bit that they can access so um are not able to get tested because we have all these other people in line trying to get tested for you know again mild cases for contact management for for other reasons right and so again the whole point of this was to reduce healthcare capacity we have vaccines and we have therapeutics and if we're not going to build systems to use those appropriately then what the hell are we doing here, right? Like, you know, yes, we can we can talk about public health measures and masking and, and debate them to the ends of the earth. But this is not 2020. This is 2022. And the disease is fundamentally different. The tools are fundamentally different. Testing is scaled up. We have everything there to make this a you know a successful process that we can cater therapy to individual patients. But we're seeing such foot dragging to deal with this. And, and again, it, it, it's, it's remarkable, right? And, and it, it, you know, it's one of these things where, you know, we were begging for therapeutics in 2020, and, and now they're in here in 2022, and, and we're still kind of figuring out how to deploy them. I, I, to me, I, I must say, as, uh, you know, it's kind of crazy. It really is kind of crazy that you, we have tools at our disposal that we're not adapting uh, adopting uh, at least to you know to scale it. it doesn't feel like we're scaling it and using it to to our advantage like and I, I'm just a little bit surprised that like I'm a, in my clinical practice I always you know you always do a cost benefit uh, ratio when it comes to in an intervention and so a lot of these interventions yes yeah, some of them have a higher risk profile than others but other some of them is like you know minimal and so like if you have a tool that's cost effective and can reduce hospitalizations and and potentially uh you know risk of dying open the door you know i I really think this has been something that um has been a bit baffling steph i want to bug your ear because we you know we've been um you know as the as the cases were going up and a lot of the media were like you know we got to add these would say like we got to add these restrictions we got to you know reduce capacity by 25 percent I reduce it by 50% in restaurants. You know, it's going to do the trick. We're going to shut our borders. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Got to shut our borders, Steph. And um, I remember pick, we have a, a chat group and I remember saying like, you know, what, what do you actually, like if we, if you were running, if you were a captain, what would you do? And I, something that st- stuck with me was Steph said like, I would invest, like I would use our resources to intervene, to to, to go where the, the problems are. So like, Steph, map out a vision for me. Like, what would you do if you had just hypothetically unlimited resources to try and uh, mitigate, uh, uh, you know, uh, risk of uh, overwhelming COVID? 
Sure. Yeah, I, I want to say, I guess, one thing. Um, so I wasn't born in Canada, but I think of myself as very Canadian. But I want to reflect just for like one time in a public space that I felt like a lot of deep shame as a Canadian uh, over the last year and a half. I'm just going to like just, just just to say that I feel very Canadian. I grew up in Sweden. I born in Sweden, but feel very Canadian. And the, the way Canada has been from blocking international students that if just I, I just want to reflect on this for a few minutes, like those folks applied for their visas like a year and a half before they applied to our University of Toronto, University of Ottawa, all these schools, they made plans, they gave up opportunities, and then we just shut down. And there was a million things. This is June, July, 2020. There's a million things we could have done for them. We could have, they could have come, they could have quarantined, they could have things. We did none of that. Throughout this entire pandemic, we have focused on controlling our borders all while we were like, this country doesn't make anything. Do you know what I mean? Like we don't, we don't really produce much. We don't grow much. We're so dependent on the world and we didn't interrupt any of those supply chains. So, you know, 25,000 trucks famously enter this country every single day, 8,000 into Ontario alone. And that was fine. But yet like, you know, <laughs> we blocked out like the, you know, obviously the Southern African ban has been, has been lifted now uh, as of five days ago, but we kept that in place. Yeah. We kept that in place for weeks at a time when Omicron was already our dominant Strain. So I just I think that like this has to be a lesson that doesn't get washed away in the midst of all this, like how w- what we did and, and how we reinforced xenophobias and, and, and how we thought of these borders as like fortress as like as if we're New Zealand, as if we're in the middle of an ocean. Do you know what I mean? And, and, and that that I think is just I just hope we don't forget that as we move forward. So well okay. put, buddy. Well put. So so, you know, I think one of the things that's missing is uh, and I'll just reflect on a personal story. So. I travel, I used to, used to travel. I, I travel, I actually was in South Africa like two weeks before Omicron kind of came. And luckily <laughs> it kind of came back before because who knows that I, I would have been able to enter this country. But just to say that, um, you know, I used to travel a fair bit for my war. And, you know, I, I came back, I remember in March of 2020, after having been on the road for a long time, all of a sudden like it was clear we were going to shut down. And I, I've been providing family care in the shelters for, for years. And, and so all of a sudden I started putting my population health uh, role on. We activated this population health team in the shelter system uh, led by Aaron Orkin and with Tom Svoboda and others. Um, and we were just like, well, what do we do? And we realized we needed an isolation site. And so we set up this isolation site and we got it going on March 12th, 2020. Really, I think it was a great site. It was a little bit like there was cockroaches everywhere and there's a lot of, a lot, it was messy. It was, it was good. But I'll t- I just want to reflect on what happened for those. So I went, I don't do call. I think, I don't know, Zane, you do overnight call. I don't know if Monica, you do. Like, I, I have a day job. Do you know what I mean? Like, I do clinic, but I don't carry a pager anymore. Uh, and I it went back to, like, carrying a pager, and we were admitting people all night. But what was interesting was the calls that we were getting from discharge planners that first week, March, you know, 12th to basically the 20th when I was on call, were all from folks who didn't have the space to isolate at home. And, and the way that our shelters, the way that our uh, isolation site was set up was we could only bring in folks who were already known to the shelter system, basically in the GTA. They, and there was, and then there's a lot of good reasons as to why that was. But what happened was when folks were not able to come in, we would just send them back home and they would say things that you could hear them behind saying like, well, I don't have any space to isolate. And you just know that they went back into their homes and they infected everybody in that house. And that was our entire, I mean, that part of it just went on for months. So I think that set my sort of like my framing for this. I remember tweeting very early, like, I don't understand, shut it down because nothing's shut down. All these folks are still out working. Then they're ending up in a merge and then they're going back home and they're infecting everybody in their household. And we like, 
shutdowns aren't doing anything, at least the way we've conceived them. They're just like we've, people famously said, they're just like focus protection for the rich. People sit back and are like watching this pandemic through their windows and on their screens. And, and you know, it's happening all in, in with folks bringing stuff to their door. And, and so I think, you know, I wanted to get some programs up and running. We were talking about like bigger isolation sites, more resources, simple stuff like paid leave, like that we, by the way, still never made happen 20 months into this thing. So, you know, at the time we introduced, a, a, I should say the government introduced $450 a week for a maximum of two weeks, which if you think about it, these folks, that doesn't, that doesn't pay for anything in this city. We both were, we're in Toronto and San Francisco, both incredibly expensive cities. I should say, and similarly with Ottawa and, and Hamilton. And, and, you know, we just didn't let, we just didn't get programming and scaled. We just relied on these passive sort of mandates to bring us out of these things. And I think we've mostly, in many places, just seen the natural history of these epidemics. And I know, by the way, not everybody on this call agrees with that. I, and that's okay. We don't all have to agree. I'll just say that. I'm not trying to convince anybody. I'm just sharing my perspectives. I think in many cases, because we intervened in a way to protect wealthier folks from something that was affecting most more low-income folks, we were watching kind of the natural history of this thing. And, and I think that's just something we have to reflect on. I think there's a lot of things we could have done, but what's important is our table needed to be filled also with people with lived experience. Like our science table, at least in this province, were like mostly white men, <laughs> you know what I mean? mostly white dudes. And they're not the people that were being affected by this. We needed folks to, to go out there and say, listen, the recommendation you're making is not consistent with what our lives are like and just some lived experience to inform that. So it's not diversity just for diversity's sake. It's diversity to inform a meaningful and useful program. And none of which we did. We did it all based on models. And I think those that let us down. Thanks. Wow, Steph. I, I think that was a great way of illustrating, you know, how you see the source of the problem and you intervene. You see how, you know, there's no place for people to isolate. You know, there's no, no incentive for people not to go to work when they're already on the margins. Why paid leave was so important. Like all these things that, you, you need to be on the ground. It's not clear. It's not, it's not intuitive to think, Oh, this, this is going to be an intuitive solution that we should do paid leave. It sounds nonsensical at the beginning of a pandemic, but in some ways, but this is why the fr people front of the line, this is why their voices need to be heard. And this is why I, I I'm going to just say this, uh, you know, this might come out a little bit edgy, but like those zoomologists that are sitting there judging, you know, what we have to say, uh, our interpretation of, of our, our impression of, of the pandemic and giving suggestions from this soapbox where they haven't even seen a COVID patient is unjustified. You know what I'm saying? You sitting there and you, you're giving advice on, you know, who's getting COVID, what our, our, our policy should be when you haven't even seen, haven't talked to, haven't uh, told a, a patient that, you know, uh, or their family member, what, what, what that's going through COVID, what it's like. Like, I, I just think there has to be some perspective and it has to come from the ground up. We know COVID has been long and hard, but we can do something amazing together during this holiday season. I'm Kevin Crow, founder of Give a Mile, and we provide flights for people to be together that are dealing with palliative or critical care. Flights for mothers, fathers, sons, sisters, daughters, 
And this holiday season, we're looking to give 40 incredible gifts of flights away from November 1st to January 1st. And this is where we need your help. We want to get connected to families that could use these flights. So if you know of a family that could use this incredible gift, please email us at info at giveamile.org. That's info at giveamile.org. And to find out more about Give a Mile, go to giveamile.org. Let's make this holiday season an incredible one of joy. I not only agree, I just interrupt, not only do I agree that MD um, saw people, so it gave them a different perspective, I saw people with COVID and also saw people with the restrictions that we put in place. But, and so I think they could inform the response better, but somehow it became the progressive or left position to be in favor of lockdowns and the right position, right of politics not to be. And that is completely backwards from what I would ever think of because it hurts so many more poor people to have lockdowns, to have the public school system closed, but private schools open, to have no resources for essential workers, not giving them the right type of uh, um, protections. It, and it, I, I, that flip, I'll never understand. It was wild. And and Monica, actually, it's a good point. We should also talk about some of the other suggestions you made for like um, focus protection as well. Like we also talked about, you know, I w- when I go on the news, I always say like, we need to reverse engineer this thing. Like who lands in ICU? What is their demographic? Where, where are they coming from? And how do we, uh, 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 how do we get to them? And one of the points you said on an interview, for example, is like, uh, are we getting boosters for example, to people that need boosters, you know what I'm saying? Like there's an 18, like when we're give, opening it up to everybody and we're saying, yeah, this 18 year old, you know, you could get your booster. Whereas I'm sorry, this kid's not landing in ICU. You know what I mean? So maybe to speak a little bit to, about this. Yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of, it's not only grossly unfair because of the global vaccine inequity that we are all contributing to sitting in these two countries, and it's really embarrassing. Um, and that's how variants arise. But beyond just, if even if you want to take out the moral and ethical failings of that, um, it just doesn't make sense to, if you really know about immunity, to boost um, young people, and especially if there are some side effects of these, and um, not those who are most likely to get a severe breakthrough. And though the CDC hasn't given us great data about that, the Wall Street Journal actually did an analysis to give us who was more at risk for a severe breakthrough, and it was immunocompromised, um, quite elderly, but they had to have medical problems uh, with it. And the specific medical problems were renal or lung disease. It was pretty simple. It was actually not not that many people are ending up with um, severe breakthroughs. So those are the targeted populations for boosters. And I find it very embarrassing to live in a place that that we're give, that when we know that there's global vaccine inequity, I again, everything is reversed right now for me. It feels like people who used to care, who are infectious disease doctors and public health practitioners about the poor just got it all wrong um, and about people who need things um, like the global planet for vaccines. I mean, I mean, Monica, this is what I've, I've just found. It's been a bit scary about this whole thing. Like it's, I don't know if this comes across the right way, but it, it almost like we ignore, we ignore the data. We ignore logic even, you know what I mean? Like common sense. I keep com- on being um, called, um, person of reason or common sense. And I'm like, but no, everyone has a reason and common sense. These are reasonable and common sense principles, right? Like these are reasonable. It isn't reasonable to have 
two-year-olds masked and sitting outside um, to eat their, uh, when it's raining and snowing, to eat their um, lunch. That's not reasonable. That's not, I don't, I don't have to need it. I did get an infectious disease fellowship, but I don't need to have an infectious disease fellowship to know that isn't reasonable. That isn't common sense. And um, it's not, this is not working. This is not right. Absolutely. And I mean, I also like what you're saying about the precision, like, like being a bit more precise overall, but even in this realm of boosters, we know who's going to get sick, get some intervention to make sure they got their booster. Damn it. You know what I'm saying? Like, and I will, I will say again to Ontario, look what happened. We opened it up to 70 year olds. We opened up to 50 year olds. And we said, almost everyone can get it. Everyone can get it. Everyone can get it. Except we didn't have the capacity to give it to anyone. And so I am hearing from 60, 70, 80 year olds who are begging for shots because they are in the same line as the Zoom crowd who can, you know, uh, surf online, try to find a pop-up, stand in line for four hours uh, and go through it. And guess what? You know, again, if this is going to ripple through essential workers and it may at some point, the, you know, the elderly in those community who are probably at the you know highest risk of complications uh, and exposure probably should be first in line for those booster shots because they are the ones that are probably going to be exposed from the household. We should be bringing it to them. Yeah. I mean, maybe but, I'm, be, I'm being a bit too like crazy. Ontario, here, Ontario's but. rollout was literally like, okay, we can't necessarily hit everyone, but we're just going to open up to everyone and see what happens, right? Well, clearly we know what happens. We know what we know what's what happened is the entire pandemic, the rich, the Rosedale crowd, Rosedale is there, you know, Beverly Hills, like the nicest area, you know, they're first in line. Um, not to say anything rude about them. They're elderly, you know, do, do need shots too, but the, the Jane and Finch, you know, the, the Scarborough elderly individual is not going to be able to compete uh, with the hunger games. And, you know, again, we've done a disservice, even in boosters, even in the, the crowd that probably do require boosters. We've done a disservice to them because, you know, people were a bit hesitant. They were thinking about it. They needed a bit of data. They needed a bit of encouragement. And, you know, they decided, okay, with Omicron coming, I'm going to get and sign up. It's gone. It's gone, right? Like, it's it's completely gone. And it, it's really a shame because if we do start seeing those folks in hospital who could have gotten a third dose, uh, and instead we saw 18-year-olds who got their three doses, what do we do? We're again, we're losing the fundamental point. We want to save healthcare workers from burnout. We want to save ICU beds from from uh, from being you know taken with ventilated patients. We want to save you know the healthcare system so it can provide surgery surgeries and and provide medical care to others. But our approach has been the sledgehammer of we're going to do general things for general outcomes. And all, all of a sudden, again, our testing is screwed up. It's not identifying the patients that I need to identify to get monoclonals in. Our boosters are screwed up because we're giving it to people that are way under the age three months after their original shot, uh, you know, their second shot, which makes no sense where I would want a 50-year-old who's, you know, or a 60-year-old who's six months into their uh, second shot or longer to get their their third dose. Uh, and again, you know, what's the outcome that we're going to get? We're going to get the wrong people in our healthcare beds, which is exactly what we were trying to prevent to, to begin with. Oh my God. Hey, Steph, you look like you were going to pipe in. I don't know if I, yeah, I know. I mean, I think, uh, you know, what, what it comes, there's a few things that I, I was going to say, um, you know, one, we're still, you know, we still, there was a lot of work to do still with first doses. I will say as, as we go out and still do a Preach. lot of first doses, 
Um, you know, I work with in incredible nursing team who really should be here speaking to this, but I'll just say that um, there's a lot of first doses still happening. There's a, the conversations are not short, but what's amazing, I'll just say just for the shortness is to say that there's no prioritization right now at first doses over third doses. You could have a third dose for a 20 year old that only now needs 84 days after their second dose. No, no more prioritized. In fact, by the way, we're out of Pfizer right now. I mean, this province is out of Pfizer for, and we're, we're, we're basically just trying to keep it for those under the age of 29. But it is to say that like, we have not like prioritized in a way that would really maximize hospitalizations. And I think it's not for lack of effort. There's just this element of like, it's hard to communicate it out because the folks that are in power are, are the Rosedale folks and they don't want you to interfere with their third dose and soon their fourth dose. They don't want you to get in the way of that. And they're powerful. They're on media. They, you know what I mean? They're on, on Twitter. And, and I think the folks that are out there really working hard, even in the way, and I'll just say the second point I was going to make is that even the way that we designed it of like, if you build it, they will come. It's like, but the people that come to those are wealthier people with flexible schedules, the very people that were at lower risk of COVID because they work remotely and have flexible schedules. Like it's, it's sort of this dynamic where the same thing that limited their ability to test early, i.e. get diagnosed late, end up in hospital, are the same things that interfere with them ability to vaccinate early or compete. And, and you know, to the folks that lead the vaccine program, I will say they, by, by about March, they realized this and they did this big push to really try to get vaccine out to lower income areas. And it worked because the reality is that often people are like, oh, they're hesitant, they're hesitant, they're hesitant. I'm like, actually, part of it is that they're just busy and you really have to figure out how to find them at a time that works for them because they have responsibilities that none of us could even imagine just given how busy they are with taking care of multiple jobs and multiple family members, et cetera. So I'll, I'll just say, and, and what's amazing is that that's playing out again for boosters. So you have a 75 year old with multiple comorbidities in, in Scarborough that really would, would benefit from it, but they're being outcompeted for slots by a 23 year old. Uh, and that, that is just a fundamental issue. Never mind, as Monica talked about, the global vaccine equity issues, which, you know, because Monica and I, and I know Zane does a lot of this as well, work a fair bit internationally, we hear regularly from our colleagues around the world that they cannot get vaccines. And, uh, you know, that they have one vaccine under their belt or one dose under their belt. Uh, their families are not vaccinated. And, and so there's just this, this sort of global push of just like, what are we doing? And then we have, you know, comedians on Twitter saying, go get your booster, go get your booster, go, go get, if you need a fourth dose, get a fourth dose. If you need a fifth dose, get a fifth dose without giving any thought to the fact that like, this has got to be the most inequitable kind of crazy response in, in history. And, and whatever we've done for global, like, I just think we've also affected the way that we engage with the world. Like, I don't think we understand that yet. But I do think that there's going to come a time in some years from now where countries around the world will know that, like, when we say we're in it together, that's bullshit. We're not in it together. You, when, when push came to shove, you did everything to protect your own. You did nothing. In fact, you banned us from coming in. In fact, you banned us from our... When you, <laughs> discovered, the, when you discovered the, the variant. Yeah, yeah, what a punishment. <laughs> yeah. What so message this, is that? Discovering it. And I'll just say, like, there will be a cost. Like this is not like right now, it's just us on, on Zoom or whatnot having this conversation, but I am sure of it, having worked in a number of places and just talking to people, hearing the tone of what the way they're, they're talking about our countries, you know, like Canada and the United States. And, and it's, it's, it's different. And, and like I said, I, there will be a cost. It's just not apparent right now. 
Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's the theme of the. Can I say uh, one more thing? Because yeah, it just reminded me of something. Someone, when Salk made his vaccine, he said, you know, how could I patent the sun? And then the same thing is, I feel like Omicron, how can you stop the wind? So these are very trans, there's no way that lockdowns are going to stop Omicron. It's very transmissible. And there was no reason to have stopped vaccine distribution worldwide. Yeah, I to piggyback uh, Steph's point, like I, th- I feel like this is a theme of the of, of the pandemic is action with no thought of repercussions. You know what I mean? Lockdown, school closures, okay. uh, inequitable distribution of, of uh, vaccines. Like I read somewhere like twenty, and some I don't know if it was a single nation in Africa, but it was somewhere like twenty five percent of the healthcare providers. That's a, the were African vaccinated. CDC. That is not a single country. Like, yeah. You know what I mean? Like that's that's. Like that's BS, yo. Like when you're the people that are providing care can't be protected, you know. Like that's oh, uh, that's ghetto. And um, but yeah, I honestly I feel like Steph. It's like we there's been little thought of what our actions and what the re- repercussions are. And I I do think there's a rec- there's a reckoning, whether it's uh, globally, as you mentioned, whether it's our kids' mental health, their well being, their education. Man, I tell you, you talk to kid, talk to teachers right now about how the kids are represented right now. They are not represented. Okay. Like it, there's deficits and it's these are these are hard to overcome. So I'm 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 cognizant of the time. So I'm gonna do some like quick hitters if I may. This one's for whoever wants to go first. Uh do you think knowing what the way what we know about Omicron right now, do you feel like passports have value? I'm just going to say very briefly, I've been against vaccine passports from the beginning and, and, uh, and not because I don't want, like, I love the vaccines. I'm very supportive of them. I think we've talked all about their benefits. Passports take, do not take into account the fact, especially these QR codes, people do not have smartphones. They are not English speaking or French speaking are two dominant languages. They, it, they don't have access to technologies. And, 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 and I will say that we are now spending, the vaccine team was at times spending one to two hours a day, like helping people with the passports so that they could go inside. Luckily, it's been pretty warm out here. It's getting colder. People are being excluded from, from indoor settings. So it's, it's to say that like when you need photo ID or in fact, a, you know, or any ID to match along with this, people are being excluded in a way that feels fundamentally unjust. And so I, I just think we needed a if these things were ever going to go into place, first of all, I also don't think that they help as we're seeing with this surge. I don't think the surge would have been different with or without this passport. So I don't think it's providing any public health impact. And I think it's excluded a lot of folks from being able to go indoors and burned a lot of energy that we could have really applied towards other things like vaccination. I, I personally could not agree more. Um, next, I'm going to go to Zane with this. Do you think family docs could have a role with therapeutics at all oh me yeah i mean when 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 these orals come out on the market it's like all hands on deck right every person involved in that patient's care needs to be reaching out to that patient it's a five-day window you know so you know in in order to counsel their high-risk patients to say hey you know you're high risk go get tested early not the 18 year old but the you know 60 year old with type 2 diabetes that has three stents yeah, you know, you want to say, you know, you got the sniffle, you probably do need to go get tested because I can intervene to make sure that you're not going to get very sick with this thing. Uh, and uh, and so, yeah, you know, it starts at the beginning there, planting the seed. It starts with helping with testing. It starts with, 
you know, facilitating access. And and absolutely, it's going to be all hands on deck when these orals come here. Uh, and, you know, as, as we talked about, unfortunately, uh, you know, the, the record that we have is that these drugs are going to go preferentially to Rosedale. And uh, I really, really don't want that, right? You know, these drugs need to go preferentially to places where they can be used. But the ability to have people that are trusted in those patients' lives to convince them to go get tested early, to give them the ability to be tested early, to be give them the ability to access the medication, take the medication, counsel through the medication. You know, there is going to be one population that favors that. And and so, you know, again, we do need, you know, on the ground people in those communities to be champions of getting distribution in, in whatever networks are possible and whatever healthcare settings are possible in that sense. And I'm going to say this, I might make some enemies. Family docs, if y'all could be in, like when you, you're double or triple vax, you need to, you can be seeing people in person, period. I am a family, so I am a family doctor. So I'll say like representing, like I will say, like I'm a population of a family doc. That's so I identify and or trained. But I, I will say like the care that we provide in person cannot be replicated online. And that's just a fundamental issue I'd like. And I think there's that is also part of the payments that will come. In fact, we're starting to see those now. When we are vaccinated, it is safe for us to be seeing folks in person. We can wear high quality masks. We can do all those kinds of things. But we need to see people in person, not everybody. But, you know, they're just uh, it worries me greatly. And I, I say that as a family physician. Thank you for that. We lead medical clinic and we didn't we didn't do hardly any telehealth. They told us to, but we didn't because Man. we them in person because they're more low income man and all three of us were seeing patients that we knew had covid intubating yeah. people with covid and not getting covid okay i, I, I i'm sorry i get i mean i'm just i guess yeah. i get a little testy when i say like i see the no one seeing more willing to see people oh you need a covid swap for like we all got to do our part step people up did that with hiv at the beginning but exactly um a couple more here this one's from monica there's just a couple of questions about risk assessment. I think I know what you're going to say. There's a, a prof, 50 years old, boosted. I'm assuming doesn't have too many comorbidities. We'll even say worst case scenario has diabetes, uh, you know, maybe some obesity, triple vaxxed. Wondering if you could see people in person and the same breath, a, a kid that is single vaxxed, how comfortable are you, how comfortable should they be in general? Yeah, I wrote both in that chat, but I feel very comfortable with you going back to person, the professor of higher education, you're so protected. And then same with the 10 year old, I have an 11 year old one, just one vaccine, get the next one later. Um, but I feel very, very comfortable with the risk stratification of how low risk children are. And also Omicron hasn't shown increased risk in children. If anything, it's just less virulent all around. Yeah. And let's not forget, like, we just, I just want to reinforce like the, the kids and risk of, of, severe illness with COVID, like just, you know, in our province, five to 11 year olds, no deaths, maybe about 40 admissions with a formal diagnosis of being admitted with COVID definitely most, most likely associated with comorbidities. The German study showing like if you were healthy, three out of a million chance of, of, of dying from COVID kids are low risk, full stop. Steph. Yes. Yeah. I, I was just going to say, you know, we, we, we taught in person, like it's amazing 
at the university, this at the university level, but it's like this Hopkins has had a big cluster, like many universities across the U S some schools made the decision to close down Cornell, Princeton, Hopkins, which has been very ahead on, on public health, made the decision to like write out the term because the students wanted it and they needed it. They, you know, they don't want to close. They're already, you know, and so I'll just say that I think, you know, the, the, the faculty are protected. They have a choice. They don't have to teach in person, but as somebody who does it and met with the students in person, like they're just so happy. They're so happy to meet in person and talk and engage. And, 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 and so I just, I just think we need to, to really respect that and, 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 and understand that their educational experience at the, again, my experiences at the university level is so different when it's online uh, as it is for us, as it is sitting here, sitting a screen, than it is when we're meeting in person, talking, engaging. At a certain point, yeah. we just need to make the decision to go back. That's right. Scenes and therapeutics and just go back and be together. Yes. I mean, the, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be a little bit more extreme here, but like the university thing is kind of insane. Like everyone, you need to be show proof of vaccination. Everyone's doubles. Uh, some of the staff will be triple vaxxed. They're low risk population and they can't meet in person. Colleges have been closing down here like crazy. I mean, 700 schools closed. So this is what, this is what I'm saying. Like, I, I'm sorry, objectively, maybe I'm coming across a little bit uh, edgy here, but that to me is insane. And th- that's our youth. That's their education. That's your future. That's the one yeah. that's going to be engin- that building your buildings. That's the one that's going to be your physician, right? And you're going to be messing around with their education on a format that has not been evaluated. Yeah. And I'll just say medical students being like going virtual, you know, like SARS part one was an amazing learn. It was a terrible time. It was an amazing learning experience for those of us in medical school and residency in Ontario to get to see a pandemic. And, and you just feel like this would have been an amazing time. These kids are going to deal with their own pandemics sooner, later, et cetera. And like having worked through this, learning it, would have been an important experience for them, but instead we like threw them out of the building and, you know, and I think that affected clinical care, but it also affected their learning. And, you know, and I, and so I just, I just think it's something that we need to take to heart. This is not about like coming down on what's happened, but it is about like informing what we need to do in our planning for next time. Like let's not throw medical students out of the building next time. They're critical. We need to change now though. No, no, we need to change now, but we need to make sure we're not, we're not forgetting these lessons as we move forward. And maybe, and just like as last thoughts here, and I I don't want to put words into your mouth, any of your mouths. And maybe, uh, maybe Zane, you could take the lead on this, but like, what should we be doing now? Like what, what, you know what I mean? Like in terms of, let me take a step back. Cause that's a loaded question. Cause uh, you know, there's issues obviously with um, how about this? I'll reframe it. When do you feel, or what do you need to see to feel like we're in an endemic stage where we, we can be more, you know, testing, for example, um, uh, doing more specific t- or targeted testing um, more, uh, uh, you know, to the stage, as Monica was mentioning, even like not, not masking everywhere, like when people want to know when we think we could get back to, to, to normal life. Yeah, it's coming. Look, you know, the end effect of this is a lot of people are going to get Omicron. They're going to have hybrid immunity. They're good. You know, but no, I don't want anyone to get infected. But the, the reality of the situation is the virus, you know, like Australia and New Zealand could barely contain Delta. And, you know, their, their solution to Delta was 
let's just immunize the crap out of our population and eventually we'll open up. And, and, you know, the reality of the situation was that even with aggressive militaristic contact tracing, they were not able to overcome Delta. Omicron makes Delta look like a rag doll, right? Like Omicron is destroying Delta. You know, there was a public health Ontario report suggesting 7.7 times more cases uh, associated with the primary case of Omicron as compared to Delta. And so, you know, there is no way case and contact management, harsh restrictions are going to be able to overcome Omicron. And, and unfortunately, we, we do have to come comfortable with the fact that many of us are going to get infected over the next three to four months. It happened in Gauteng and their epidemic curve eventually shifted at the, where they saw the peak of Delta, they see the peak of Omicron. Uh, and it's likely that just a lot of people got infected all at once. And it, it you know, ran its course in that, in that immunized or naturally immunized population. You know, the, 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 the track to endemicity is again, can we deal with this virus in a manner that reduces healthcare utilization and targets the highest risk. We have now antibodies in, in Ontario, you know, 90% of people have vaccine derived antibodies and a good number of those who don't probably do have natural immunity post-infectious antibodies. We're getting there, right? So this is not an immunologically naive population. We have immunity in a good chunk of the population doesn't mean that we don't have vulnerable members. It doesn't mean there are people immunosuppressed that could break through. And so can we build systems so that we use every single one of our tools to reduce healthcare capacity? Uh, and, 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 you know, that's the path to endemicity. That's the path to, to getting here, right? It's not isolating every case because we're not going to be able to isolate. I mean, we're not isolating. We know this, right? You know, Omicron, there's 5,000 cases a day in Ontario. There's 40,000 cases a day probably in Ontario at this point. And, and again, we just lost the ability to measure them in that sense. Um, uh, so yeah, you know, I, I think again, how can we redevelop systems so the right people get tested, the right people get treated, we continue to immunize the right populations, we deal with our global inequity in vaccines, you know, that's endemicity, right? That we can sustain this virus with every tool we have, build systems that integrate all of this together rather than focusing on on and off switches as our ability to control the disease. Amen. Steph. Yeah, I'll just say that, uh, just to add on to that, that endemicity does not mean like a straight curve in terms of like cases, because I've seen this thing of like, you know, it, they'll never be endemic. No, it's like endemic. What the way that we're describing it is is like epidemic or seasonal epidemics in the way that we deal with every seasonal, you know, respiratory virus. And so, endemicity is really about hospitalizations, about healthcare utilization. And I, I'll just say that I think, like at this point, whether it be the CDC, whether it be FAC uh, or 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 provincially, uh, Public Health Agency Canada, or or for each of the provinces, like we need a plan. You know what I mean? Like, it's not that hospitalization has to be a single indicator because even hospitalization can be complicated in terms of like with or, or from, et cetera. You know, is it ICU admissions? Is that, is that too lagging? Like there's all these things, what we need plan with like clear objectives and a series of key performance indicators so that people know, because I think a lot of folks follow case counts and, and like we can't, I, you know, you gave the story earlier about Singapore controlling that, but like the Singaporean government can control that. Like here, we can't control that data being published in, in, in that way. So it's like if 
I'll just say that like those data aggregators are going to exist. They're going to crawl and pull in information and people are going to be seeing case counts. I think what, if we provided context to those case counts, if we provided them so that they are one of several indicators that people look at, I think the general public will start getting it. But otherwise, if we don't do that, their levels of anxiety are going to go up when the case counts go up and, and, and we'll see it'll feed itself. The anxiety feeds more testing and more testing to the point when the testing system falls apart very quickly. So I think that like one of the critical things that we need to do at this point is just for there to be a clear plan that people can look at. So it's not a single indicator uh, and, 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 we'll be in a better position and not constantly chasing these like social media profits that are, is, is, you know, is, is a fundamental problem that, you know, and, and then, um, and then we won't just follow case counts, which I think is also just a fundamental issue. And, and the, the same people that have been fundamental, like it's having wildly wrong modeling projections. And, and the other thing is step two, it allows us to be less reactionary. If there is a plan, if there is that, that framework that we could follow to say, this is the direction we're going because the data shows us this. And it, it, it's clear, it's transparent. And right. it's, in my opinion, as a non-policymaker or whatever, I don't think it should be that hard, personally. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I just, I just want to say very briefly, I mean, like, could you imagine if, like, I don't know, like, I'm not a business person, but, like, even the, business, the big businesses report out, like, every three months or something. And it's not, could you imagine if, like, a stock went down and the business had to drop their strategy that day, <laughs> do you know what I mean, or readjust their strategy that day and then adjust it constantly? Like, it would never work. And that's what's happening that people are, are, are jumping after a leading indicator in a way and, and saying, you know, and, and so I think we just need to get a little bit more strategic. And if we had a plan, people could say like, listen, this is what we expect to happen, but just give us time. You know, this is what we're doing and explain to people because when you do empiric interventions, it's easier to explain what you were saying earlier with like restaurants. It's like, it's so arbitrary. Do you know what I mean? It's Random. just so it's, it's painfully arbitrary. And as a, as a, public health expert or whatever I am, an epidemiologist, like, I don't understand it. It's just based on, well, let's hopefully people will be further apart. And you know what I mean? But, but I think at this point, if you have interventions that are responsive to data, then you can explain to people in a much more meaningful way. This is the community that's at risk. These are some of the determinants that put them at risk. This is how we're intervening on those determinants. And when we just do this sort of weird community transmission things that are so, that it, the only word that comes to mind is arbitrary, then I think it's harder to explain and people feel like it's this black box model that they don't get because it, you know, and, and then it, and then they get distrustful and then you lose. And once you lose that trust, lose public health trust, yeah. I mean, it's, it's so hard to gain back. Yeah. I mean, mass distancing, ventilation, contact tracing and testing five strategies before vaccines after vaccines it's vaccination and then it's therapeutics for those who decline to vaccinate and all of these other modalities were to get us to the vaccine and now we have the vaccine and we are causing harm by the other modalities we are causing harm so let's go to we are so lucky we have the vaccines now we have therapeutics and we should have used our other therapeutics more and now we're in a totally different state. That's endemicity. That means endemicity. It means it will come and go. And I think the best thing to do to relax is not tell people case counts, have them be tracked by health department, just like we do influenza. The minute you do that, influenza surveillance, 
everyone is quite relaxed, uh, except if the hospitalizations go up with influenza. Right now, you have a chance, 3.69, over 100,000 chance of being hospitalized if you're vaccinated in right now in, in um, the U.S., there's about 20 to 100,000, over 100,000 to 40 over 100,000 in a typical flu season. That's how low your risk is of being hospitalized if you're vaccinated. So, um, so that's, let's follow that indicator. Yes, people. This is, I, first of all, I just want to give a, 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 just mad love, Zane, Monica, Steph. I, I, I got to tell you, I, this has left me a, a little bit, I'm feeling more empowered. I'm feeling more positive of, of our, our future outlook here because you know not only have we we talked about like you know how the future what's important for us to move forward but every single one of you guys has, has a platform has a voice and I think by talking about this now by putting those, those tweets out by putting those op-eds out in, in, in Time magazine doing those interviews Zane on CBC, like this is where we change this narrative because we have had enough of this fear-based decision-making that is not based on data, that is not based on evidence. And it's time for change. It really is. It's time for change. When, I, when I'm hearing about my kids when, uh, going out to try and play some uh, ice hockey uh, and they're telling me, oh, only 25 people allowed on a, a rink that's uh, the size of a football field. That's insane. And we need to change this narrative. We need to we need to do this. And I think this has helped. I hope people listening, I know it's going to be helpful for them in terms of just mapping out a future. Once again, thank you so much for listening, everybody. This is uh, this is honestly uh, the, the path forward and we're going to get there. Um, the last thing I want to say, too, is any leaders out there, no, actually leaders and media, media, please. There's a couple of media folks listening. If you're going to say the case counts, you have to say the hospitalizations, please. Back to back even. Like they need to put things into perspective. And then the sec second thing I want to say about our leaders, have some optimism, give people hope. Be leaders, do, be true leaders. Show some character and, and show the fact that we can get through this. This is what people need right now. Quadcast Nation, thanks again. Um, I hope you enjoyed this and uh, we will uh, connect again real soon. Peace.